0: So the title, Faithful Care for People You Can't Fix. or I need to remember not to wonder. I tend to wonder, but I'll take this out, I think. So Faithful Care for People You Can't Fix. And if you notice the, the subtitle of the seminar, hopefully you can see what's on the screen there, but the subtitle says, Learning to Care for Others as God Cares for Us. And I don't know if you see a potential contradiction between those two phrases. I'm not sure I even thought of it when I wrote them way back when I was asked for the title and the subtitle, but the contradiction, of course, might be, well, surely we may not be able to fix things and people, but surely God can. And so what would it mean to say we're caring for others as God cares for us? Because surely God can fix everyone. Now that might lead to the kind of question that people debate at great length. Can God create a rock so big that he can't lift it? Uh, I'm not expecting you to answer that question or even to debate it. It's a bit of a pointless question. But it is a question that people have raised because when we talk about the omnipotence of God, what God can do, sometimes we say, well, God can do anything. And I know what we mean by that. We're saying that God is not limited in his power. But yet the way God has created the universe is that there is an order and there is a a logic, if you like. And so the idea of an unliftable rock doesn't make logical sense. The idea of God creating something bigger than he could lift is illogical. So it can't happen. Okay, So we can dismiss the concern about that because it cannot happen. And that is because God is a God of order. His character is such that he cannot do something that is disorderly. He cannot do something that is contradictory to who he is. And when we say that, we're not saying... Please don't mishear me. I'm not saying there are things God can't do. Therefore, I don't believe in God's omnipotence or in his power. But that God is not a, an impersonal power. He is a person with a character. And his, from his character flows everything that he does. Now, why am I starting with that? I'm starting with that because I think when we think about care and pastoral care then we need to understand that it too flows from the character of who God is. And that everything God does in our lives and in the lives of the people that we care for flows from who he is. And that his greatest agenda for us is always going to be that we grow to know more of who he is. So I want you just to take a moment to pause. Maybe turn and Go to somebody that you're familiar with beside you and chat. If there is someone, if you're on your own, you can chat to a stranger or not. That's fine. I don't want anybody to be under pressure. But if we said, well, God can fix many things, and yet many things remain unfixed in my life, certainly, I'm sure in your life too, and in the lives of people that you care for. Why is that? Why is that? How do we resolve that? Or, or what questions does it raise for us, perhaps? So is that okay if we take a moment just to, to think about that individually, or, or turn to each other and just chat about that? Why is it that some things remain unfixed? What does that say, or what questions does it raise? And then we'll get a little bit of feedback and move on. So t- turn in just to, to get us thinking, and talking. Okay, let's wrap our our conversation up (laughs) or reunite the church as I like to call it let's (laughs) any questions so not so much comments but as you thought or talked about that any questions that you want to throw out to help shape how we approach this subject and then I want to say something by way of introduction of myself because I think everyone's gathered now but any questions what does fix mean? Okay, What would it mean to fix somebody? So the, it's really good, isn't it, to stop and think, what do we mean by that? Well, you've all come to a seminar that was maybe a little bit en- enigmatically titled. But what do we mean by fix and why would we expect to fix people or things? So I, I will hopefully answer that and if it don't, ask me again at the end. All right. <laughs> yeah, anything else? Okay. So often the, the comment is that sometimes people who have no real faith or re, in God or relationship with God will turn to him in a moment of crisis when something goes wrong. Um, and so often it is an, a, a, an experience of need, isn't it, that turns people to God. That's how life works, that wakens us up to say that what we already have is not adequate. So how do we handle that? Because in that moment someone is looking for something, for a fix, But of course what God wants to do in the person's life might be something different than that thing. Uh, Our felt needs, if I can call it that, are not always the same as our real needs and God in his wisdom knows our needs better than we do. So we're dealing with people's very real senses of need, often in very painful and difficult circumstances. And so we want to respond to that with a a promise of something, but what is the promise? That is the question, isn't it? How do we how do we support and help and encourage without misrepresenting what God might be be doing? Yeah. I know that's not what you said, Anne, but that's a, my reflection on that. But any any other maybe one more question or comment just to help frame things. Yes. So we're we're talking here, I'll just repeat for the benefit of the recording, but that there are some folks, I suppose all of us uh, and this is one of the big insights, isn't it, that psychology and, and psychiatry, since the time, particularly of Sigmund Freud onwards, has has opened up the, the the recognition that our formative years, our early years, have a very big impact and a lasting impact, often, on how we think, and on a narrative that we tell ourselves, a, a story that reinforces certain beliefs, the values, of what we've heard as a child, what mum or dad or others around us said can have deep and lasting consequences and impact and to what degree I suppose then the question might be can we expect that to change is that something that we struggle with lifelong or or can that narrative change it can be difficult was the comment to speak into that and challenge that Uh, and so yes we need to understand that but I think the, the counter to that is that we need to realise that for most of human history, before Sigmund Freud, people did not think just as much about that. And so there's a danger, in a sense, that we get so caught up with, with this idea that effectively you are fixed as a person, sorry, set, not fixed in the sense of patched up, but, but set as a person from your formative experiences and that we shouldn't expect any change. So we're on a, there's a question there, isn't there? You know, how do we not think, well, there can't be any change and yet recognise how difficult change might be and how long it might take. So, yeah. OK, well, let's, let us let me say something by way of introduction to, to myself for those who don't don't know me. Um, my name is Paul Coulter. Uh, my background, um, well, I'm from Northern Ireland, as you can hear. I uh, have lived in Lisburn all my life from a Christian home. had a real privilege, like many of us, to be brought up in that environment. Um, ha, moved then into uh, medical studies at Queen's uh, after school. At that stage, was thinking about overseas medical mission. That was really where I thought the Lord was leading me to, because there was a, a burden for a ministry of the word, uh, and then also this love for, for medicine. Moved into to medicine and enjoyed that, and was hugely privileged in that. I know some of you in the room are, are in the medical professions, and I think it's a wonderful Profession to be in, but then was involved increasingly in ministry, gospel ministry with people, and there wasn 't space in my life for both of these things uh, and i i couldn 't give myself fully to a medical career i couldn 't i 'm not saying others can 't please uh, understand that, but i couldn 't and also fulfill that calling to the word so moved into church ministry cross culturally with the Chinese community in Belfast. Uh, and then uh, into a, a, a local a church that was more local-born folks, um, and then moved into training and teaching folks in Belfast Bible College, which um, I know some of you will know me from there. So just recently in April, I've again taken another step, which maybe it's not always easy to see that the. the, the the story that runs through that in another person's life, but there is that story. I've always had that sense of a burden and passion for training people and a love for the church and a belief that it's in communities of God's people that the gospel is worked out, is demonstrated, and lives are transformed. Uh, And so although I, I loved my time at the college and I think there's a real place for colleges to train those who can and should go, my calling is really to come back closer to churches and to be doing training close to churches in areas that they recognize that they need, for people who who maybe would never go to Bible college, um, and yet who who really need that training. So that's a big part of what we do in Living Leadership. The other thing that we do is supporting leaders, and and often giving pastoral support and encouragement to people in leadership, which, believe, believe it or not, is really often lacking. Um, so pray for us in that. I've only been in it since April. The organisation has been around for 15 years, uh, led by a man called Marcus Honeyset, who some of you might know of. Marcus continues to be the director, but I'm heading up uh, all of the ministry operations across the UK, but I'll still be based in Northern Ireland. So that's the plan. Now, the, the clipboard, Mark, did that go? It's gone round. So, yeah, I, I mean, that there is a clipboard there. If you want to sign up... <laughs> to this strange organisation you've never heard of, to hear about what we do, please put your name down, but you can unsubscribe from that at any time, okay? As uh, as we're required to, but quite rightly. So don't feel if you sign up, you're going to get bombarded with stuff and you can never get out. But if you would like to know more, sign up to that or come and speak to me Uh, You can take one of my cards and we can have a coffee. Uh, The flyers that are there talk about a course, as I say, in pastoral care that we're starting in uh, the new year 2020 down in Lisburn. So again, that's really to help folks who are going to be seriously involved in pastoral care to be well equipped. So a lot of what I say here, we we could take so much further. But let's get into this subject and really think it through. What I think we need, or what I believe wholeheartedly we need in our churches and in our lives, is gospel shaped care. Now, that might seem a little bit obvious. We are gospel people. We are people who are saved through the gospel. We are people who believe the gospel. We are people who want to share the gospel. But I think the challenge sometimes for us is that when it comes to something like caring for others, there are all sorts of other values that come in and messages and narratives, perhaps even in a person's life and, of course, in our culture and sometimes in caring professions, which are are, are wonderful and have a part to play. But we need to have confidence and clarity in the middle of that as to what is the gospel when it comes to the needs of others, and how does the Gospel shape the way we understand that so if you'll forgive me, I want to rehearse with us what well, well i, I don 't apologize because how can we not rehearse the gospel and come back to it but when I talk about the gospel and I suppose everything I do quite often really it 's very simply based around this idea of the gospel shaping what we do, whatever the issue is so when I explain that i, I I think we need to understand the gospel is a message. It is the good news message of Jesus Christ. But it's a message that is a story, if I can call it that. It is the true story of the world. And it is the true story of ourselves. And most importantly, it's the true story of God. And so I like to think of that. It can't be reduced to this. And these are not five points and if I get these five points, I've got the gospel. There are five, five movements, if I can call it that, five, five important aspects of this story. So I'm, I'm going to invite you to put your hand up. I know some of you hate doing that, or that's just not your thing. This is not a, we're not going to sing a praise song with your hand up, okay? But if you, if you would like to, because physical movement can reinforce things in our minds. So just, just lift your hand up with your five digits that are there, okay? So if we start with the thumb, We're going to say the starting point of this story is God. And it begins with God. Scripture begins with God. This is the big story of the Bible as well, isn't it? So it begins with creation. And I call that God rules so that we'll have five R's. It makes it easy to remember. Okay, God rules. So who is God? Our good, gracious, and holy, and righteous God rules. And he rules in creation. He created us and he created the world. But we Rebelled. Sin. And, and and our rebellion against God's rule, we want to make ourselves king fundamentally. And yet in doing that, we make ourselves slaves to all sorts of other beliefs and, and powers and false gods. We think, in a sense, that we will be free. Or maybe, as Gilbert said the other day, your idols are what you fear most more than God, not what you love. And because we don't know God, then we worship all sorts of other things, don't we? And fear all sorts of other things. But God rescues. There's the third R. And it's the middle point. I I kind of think of this, well, it starts with the thumb. And the thumb is actually, if you notice, your thumb connects with all the other fingers. In some sense, it's getting our understanding of creation right is is the starting point for understanding the rest of it. If we don't understand God's goodness and wisdom in creation, we won't understand the other points. But sin is our rejection. But the longest finger is the good news that God, God rescues through Jesus. Now, that's much bigger than just the Gospels in our Bible. That's the whole story of Israel. Of God revealing himself to them, of his character, of his promises, of their hopes and their disappointments. And all of those hopes find their fulfillment in Jesus. And all of those disappointments find their correction in Jesus. So he's right at the center of the gospel. And it's not just Jesus and his life, but his death for our sins and his resurrection from the dead. If we had to reduce it down, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. You see, the back story matters. You can't really understand the death of Jesus without the Old Testament. And he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. That's right at the heart of the gospel. But fourthly, we respond. We respond. And that means that there has to be a response. Let me bring these points up. I should have done that as we go through. But we respond. Repentance and faith are necessary for us to receive the life that God offers to us in Christ. Now, I know this is foundational. Please, I'm not, I'm not trying to, but I think we need to start with the foundation. So they acknowledge the rule of God. When a person repents... They're not just saying, I feel bad about what I've done or even I feel sorry for what I've done. That's, of course, part of it. But it's more than that. It's saying, you've been right all along, God. (laughs) And I got it wrong. and, uh, And I'm acknowledging your rule. And then in response to that or... Well, Our theology might say, which comes first, chicken and egg? It doesn't really matter. But but through faith, God then restores. So the gospel doesn't finish. Now, sometimes we've communicated the gospel in four points, and it ends with our response. And I understand that. We're calling people to a response. But we mustn't forget the gospel begins with God, and it ends with God. And it's got God in the middle. (laughs) It's really all about him. And he restores, and that is a present restoration by the power of the Holy Spirit who comes to live in our lives, to make his home in us, who begins to transform us into the likeness of Christ as we respond to the gospel. It's never the spirit without the gospel or the gospel without the spirit. The two work hand in hand, the word and the spirit, present help and future hope. Now, it's funny how moments happen in the church and emphases kind of shift. And maybe Gilbert again said this one of the mornings, or maybe it was Sunday evening, but maybe in the present moment there is more of a focus on the present help and a loss of an emphasis on the future hope that the fullness of our salvation, the fullness of God's kingdom will only come when Christ returns in glory. But we must understand that, mustn't we, if we're going to be thinking about caring for people we can't fix? Because the implication of this is that we live in the now but the not yet. That it, well, it shapes how we understand suffering, doesn't it? And how we understand the the challenges of life and how we understand God's restoration. Because it tells us that because the Spirit is at work, there is the real possibility of real change now. And when a person is in Christ, the old has gone and the new has come. And we cannot accept the idea that, well, your childhood experiences fix, set, not fix and repair, but set who you are and you cannot overcome them. Your personality is just. That's who you now are and there is no possibility of change or your desires cannot change. They are fixed. We must recognize that if God chooses to change these things as we repent and trust in him, he can do that. Of course he can. But we must also recognize that he has not promised to change all of these things here and now. But... He has promised to change them all, ultimately. (laughs) Okay, So you understand why I'm starting with the gospel to frame our understanding of this. Because the implications are, God can fix anyone. But, first of all, that often depends on our faith. He doesn't just... Ramstam in and and, and and change people. Maybe he can if he chooses to do that, but 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 for the real lasting change of conversion, that requires a response of faith. Think about the ten men with leprosy who came to Jesus. Ten were healed. How many were saved? One. And it says it in the text. Only the one who came back and thanked Jesus for it was saved. So, yes, the bodies of the others were, were healed in a miraculous way that we would, we would be so grateful for if it was in our lives, but the real lasting change, eternal salvation, happened in the life of the one who came back and thanked Jesus. So faith is, is, is necessary, we know that. But secondly, God will fix everyone who believes completely, not who believes completely, but he will fix them completely. I want to say that absolutely strongly. God will fix you completely in every sense of the word. Salvation is total. God has promised that there is healing for all who are in Christ. But, and it's a very, very important but, he has not promised that that will happen now in this life. And in this age, and we know this, don't we? Even where we may have experienced or seen others experience a miraculous healing, if you follow their life for long enough, they will have become ill again with something else. And ultimately, they will pass through death unless they live until Christ comes again. All of the people that Jesus healed physically and emotionally in the New Testament are now in glory, aren't they, if they trusted in him or not if they didn't trust in him, if they just simply received the healing and didn't give thanks. So we really need to to understand that when we are working with, with people and even in our own lives, it's not a question of will God heal. So let's have the confidence to say yes, he will, but it is a recognition that he will do that in his timing. And so as we're called to care for other people, some people we care for cannot be fixed. Either because they will not respond to God or because God will not fix them here and now. Yes? can Can we agree on that in a sense that we do need to minister to, to care for people who cannot be fixed? Not because God is not powerful, but because God will not override their response to him and their faith. And also because there are times when God chooses not to heal in this age. Now that should be quite obvious to us if we've read the, the Bible. We've read Paul, or we can read him in Corinthians, can't we, when he talks about his thorn in the flesh. And three times he pleaded with God, to take it away. Not some kind of, oh, Lord, if you would, could you? No, Lord, desperately, I I wish I was rid of this. We don't know what his thorn in the flesh was. And I think as the Spirit inspired him, intentionally the Spirit did not inspire him to specify what it was. Because all of us can take that image and say, well, my thorn in the flesh might be this physical illness or impairment. Or it may be a, 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 a mental impairment, a a pattern of thinking or a tendency towards depression, or it may be an area of temptation or desires that are unwanted. It could have been any of those things in Paul's case. But Paul says, what did the Lord say to him? My grace is sufficient for you. And I do believe we can hear those words of Christ to us. So as we care for others, what do we pray for them? Well, of course we can plead, Lord, would you take it away? But we can't promise that he will. And we must not. And that's not a lack of faith. Yes? It's not a lack of faith because faith is not, I believe that God can do this and should do it so he better do it. Faith is Lord you know best and so here is our desire and it's a passionate desire and it's a deeply felt and a deeply comes from a deeply painful place but Lord we trust you it's the if it be possible as the Lord prayed let this be taken from me yet nevertheless not my will but yours be done The gospel needs to frame our understanding of our weakness, of the weakness of others. But the gospel calls us in what are often very complicated situations. It's a whole mixture of things, isn't it? You know, so even in the way I'm talking about this is a little bit simplistic. Because when a person is struggling with an issue, there's a whole complex, isn't there, of, of, of the actual, maybe a physical illness, for example. Well, there's the physical pain, and then there are the thoughts that go with that, and the interpretations of that, and the questions that it raises. And the question within all of this complex situ- uh, situation and pattern is, which parts of this are sinful, and which parts are legitimate and, and questioning because questioning is part of faith and turning to God with the why and the how long as the Psalms demonstrate and which parts are just well it it's actually just something I have to bear and, and live with now let's take a moment just to 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 pause before we move on to some practical thoughts about this so just Again, you may want to do this individually or you may want to turn to somebody else. Anything in what I've said that raises more questions for you or that wasn't clear that you want clarification on, because I want to make sure we're all comfortable with where we're at now before we move into some of the, 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 the practical response. So do, do take a moment individually, turn to somebody else, ask for clarification, and if you're all confused, then ask me, please. <laughs> okay, any, any questions for clarification or... Yep, help us. Yes, so the question relates to, to mental health issues, and there is a verse uh, that Paul writes to Timothy and says, God has not given us a spirit of fear uh, or of timidity, but of a sound mind, amongst other things. And uh, how do we line that up then with, with mental health problems for the Christian? And I would first of all say I'm not an expert in mental health or in psychiatry, um, but I, I think we need to read the whole of Scripture in its totality around that. So I think when Paul is saying that to Timothy, Timothy is clearly a younger than Paul anyway man who does struggle with issues of timidity and maybe fearfulness. Now that, for me at least, is a is helpful starting point because so do I at times. And sometimes beyond what... I suppose the danger with this is that, that because we live in a very medicalised world, we tend to think of things as being, well, you've either got a problem or you haven't. Now, in some areas, we've begun to realise, for example, with autism, which is not a mental health issue, it's a, it's a different issue, but there is a spectrum, and we're all, we're all on it somewhere. And, and so when it comes to fears and anxieties and and uh, worries, there is a spectrum. Or when it comes to mood. Some of us are just naturally more chipper and bright, and some are a little bit darker and gloomy in our, in, our, in our disposition. And there's a spectrum. And we can shift along that, usually within a range that's our kind of range. okay. And for some of us, that means our natural range is closer to the end that medically we would call depression. okay. But we have to understand that is a diagnosis, that ha- a label that has been created to help folks get help when they need it. Is it wrong? Is it a sin if a Christian experiences depression, for example, or other mental health issues? No, absolutely not. I want to be categorical and absolutely clear about that. There is nothing in Scripture that suggests that that is sinful. And we need to understand, and this is where we go back to the Gospel. God created. And when he created, it was very good. And if the story ended there, then we would have to say, well, my disposition is just my disposition. God made me that way. Which either leads us to say, to blame God. Why did you make me this way? Why did you give me these desires, if it's a desire issue? Why did you give me this melancholy disposition? But that's not all that we believe about how we got to be the way we are, is it? We've got to go to the second point. We rebelled. Now, that does not mean that my disposition is a result of my sin, but I live in a fallen world. And so part of this affects us at every level. The genes, our our upbringing, the environment we live in, the messages that we hear, our thought patterns, within that is a complex of bits which are frankly my decision to focus on something that is unhealthy and bad. Which fuels and feeds that, so it grows, or to believe that that it is fixed and God can't change. Sorry, fixed, settled. I shouldn't keep using "fixed" in that way. You know what I mean. It can't be changed. Well, why would I believe that if the if the Bible doesn't say it cannot be changed? So it's one thing to say I believe God can change it, but 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 then I come on to the next point and say, well, Christ has died for all of this. And then the next point, I need to respond in faith. So I need to believe the truth, whether I feel it or not. And then the last point, I live in the now, but not yet. So Lord, change this if you will. But if you won't, give me the grace to walk through it until Christ comes again and you fix it. (laughs) Okay, so I live in the hope that it will be fixed and I look for the grace to walk through it. So it's following that gospel story and message through. So I know that it's not when I experience a, a desire that is leading me towards something that God has revealed in his word is sinful. Or I experience a, a darkness in my thought life. Well, that may well be because somewhere in my genes is, a, is something that went wrong over the, the, the generations that has given me a predisposition. I may have a gene that gives me a predisposition to this desire, or that gives me a predisposition to be melancholy and negative. Uh, but but that doesn't make it okay. <laughs> it doesn't mean I'm to blame. But I, but but this is part of the fall, isn't it? So so I live with that, and and some of us have to, and others don't. And together we need to understand that maybe a little bit more, that there are folks for whom it is very hard to keep their mood up. And they need encouragement and they're not just choosing to be negative. But then if I am one of those people, I need to say, Lord, help me to keep on believing. I believe, like the man who came to Jesus, whose son was on I believe, but help my unbelief, <laughs> Because we're all a mixture of that, aren't we? We believe, but we don't believe. We believe, but we struggle to believe. For me, the struggling is, is at times to believe that God really will fix it ultimately. <laughs> okay, but, but that's our experience, I think, whatever this specific issue is. So sometimes we kind of single some things out and we say, oh, Christians shouldn't experience that. Or if you become a Christian, that will disappear from your life. And if it hasn't, you don't have enough faith. Where does it ever say that in scripture? It simply doesn't. It does say if you come to Christ, you will have the assurance of the promise of God that he will bring you to glory and that he will walk with you through this life and that he brings you into a community of people who walk this journey with you. Yes? Amen? (laughs) That is promised. So we need to be that community, but we need to stop beating ourselves up for the things that have not changed and maybe stop judging others for those and realize that within all of that I said um, feelings, didn't I? Gilbert said it this morning, in fact, um, that we do live in an age that is feeling obsessed. And I think in some of the deep and difficult pastoral challenges that we face, we can get it wrong by focusing on the feelings, okay? And what I mean by that, and and please don't misunderstand me, I don't mean that feelings are unimportant. If you don't feel, you're dead, (laughs) okay? So feelings matter. But feelings need to be brought into alignment with truth, don't they? Yeah? And so the danger is but, but you know, but with that, when I say they need to be brought in an, into alignment, that does not always mean that the feeling will always change and, and will never come back, okay? Because it may be that it's part of my genes and my experience and the narrative that I've told myself self for years or that I was told by others. And so it will be a daily challenge to wake up and say, I'm not going to listen to that loud as it is, compelling as it is, because it is not true. And as I read the word of God, I see the truth of God, and I don't feel it. But why does it matter that you you and I don't feel it? Do you see what I mean? Now, when I say that, please, again, I'm not being hard and saying, why does it matter? Just pull yourself up at all. What I mean is that that feelings do not dictate reality. And, and, And that is not easy. And there are folks, when they get into a place where they cannot see that, and they cannot look beyond that, and the darkness is so intense, then I am thankful that God has given us other wisdom and other skills, talking therapies and medication, yes, in some cases, that can help with that. And there is nothing wrong with that. That is a good gift from God and we should receive it as a good gift from him and thank him for it. And those who are medics should practice that with thankfulness to God and in a way that encourages their patients still to remember that it, it, it's not the whole story. Sorry, that's a very long answer or response and it, it probably takes away from a lot of what else I have planned to say, but that's fine. Any other questions? Maybe another, another question or comment at this point. Okay. Okay. Well, let's let's think a little bit more about why this is a challenge for us. Now the, the picture is meant to represent medical technology, but we need to understand in the West, in the modern West, we live in a technological world, and that has given us a message that says everything can be fixed." And that leads us to expect that everything will be fixed. And if they don't have a cure for it yet, somebody's researching it, and sooner or later they will have it. Now, I am very thankful for medical technology and medical advances and technology generally, but I think we need to be careful that we don't start to believe that story. Because that is not the gospel, is it? The gospel is not that we as human beings, through our ingenuity, will fix all of our problems. If anything, that's almost the opposite of the gospel, isn't it? And that's why I said, uh, it's a throwaway comment in a sense, but to those who are in medical professions, medicine or allied uh, professions, as Christians, think about how you can practice without giving people the impression <laughs> That you can fix everything or that we can fix everything and there's no need for God within that. There are things that only God can fix. Forgiveness from God is something only God can give and it's the most important need, isn't it? But there are also things that do not get fixed. And as medicine progresses... As we fix some things, we then move on and discover other things that can't be fixed. So the headline yesterday was that the largest cause of death now for women in the UK is dementia. The largest single cause of death. For men, it's still heart disease. Now, why I'm saying that is that... that (laughs) this is how our bodies work and uh, and and we face these these challenges but we live in a world that is somehow promising us we can fix it and and it should be able to be fixed and uh, and and you shouldn't have to live with something that isn't fixed and uh, yeah Do we identify with that? Maybe that pressure from our society. But it's not the gospel. But the problem is we have allowed that to influence our understanding of the gospel at times. And we have produced a therapeutic gospel. Which is wrong for two reasons. What I mean by that is a gospel that is offering a therapy. A fix. And it's wrong for two reasons. It's wrong first of all because the gospel is not primarily about you and me. We are part of it. We get to be part of it, but it begins with God, it ends with God, and it has God at the center. So how do we turn the gospel, which is a message of the lordship of Christ? Christ died. Yes, he died for our sins. He died for us. But it's him dying that matters most in that statement, not me. (laughs) Do you see my point? And in fact the gospel is first and foremost a call to step away from myself. I was preaching on Sunday and I and I've come to love this passage but in Luke 5 Jesus calls Levi and I said it on Sunday if anybody was was there I know at least one or two were but the the thing the thing with that is that Levi almost doesn't get a mention in his own story even when he writes it himself in Matthew because When they had met Jesus, there wasn't any room to talk a whole lot about themselves. (laughs) Do do, do you understand that? There's no big biography of Matthew and and what he felt in this moment and so on. It's, it's, It's all about who Jesus is. And one of the things that Jesus says is that he has come to be a physician. To bring healing. And I say it again. He has come to bring total healing. By his wounds we are healed. Except... That, that healing may be future, maybe through death and resurrection. But is Jesus only your physician? Is that the best image of who Jesus is? Is that what you want Jesus to be? How many of you make Well, sorry, I'll not ask how many visit your doctor regularly, but how many of you visit your doctor regularly just for a wee chat? Just to socialize with them. You you don't, do you? You go when you need them, and you're very thankful that they're there, and they may be perfectly lovely, but you're really glad when you don't have to see them. (laughs) Yes? And that's the way it ought to be. We are thankful for them, but we don't forge a lasting, life-changing relationship with our doctor, although many of us will be very thankful for very good doctors who have helped to change our lives. But we are called, because in the same passage, Jesus uses another image of himself, and he says that he is the bridegroom. And that's a very different relationship, isn't it? This is not just somebody who wants to patch you up and send you on your way to live the life that you want to live. This is somebody who wants to enter into a covenant relationship, lifelong and eternity long with you, and even not just with you individually, but with us collectively. Do you you see that? And a bridegroom, and it's important that he's the bridegroom in the culture of the time, whatever we think of that now in our culture, but, but... hit the references to him as the, the master as well, the head and and the lord in that relationship. It's not it's not him who's the bride. Okay, in that culture of that time, you get that. That he's saying I want a, a lifelong, eternity long relationship with you in which I will teach you and develop you and grow you. So a therapeutic gospel is wrong because it puts us at the center, but it's also wrong because it reduces Jesus to a fix for our need. And when we do that, we stay the center. And so the gospel doesn't come to people and say, what would you like God to do for you? It does come to people and say, Christ is Lord and he... he, I don't know what he wants to do in your life, but I know that he loves you, and I know that he wants to do something in your life, and that's going to mean change. And here's how he's changing me, and here's the bits that he hasn't quite changed yet, and I, I'm sorry and that those rub off on you, but he's a great lord. Do, do you see what I mean? So it's getting the gospel right that allows us to approach people with that. But the gospel calls us to live Dietrich Bonhoeffer... Um, German writer who, who died under Nazi Germany, but wrote some very helpful books about pastoral care. And he said that we must live, Bonhoeffer tended to say men, meaning all of us. He was of his age in that. But men and women, we must live as men and women who manage our lives without God. Before God and with God, we live without God. That's a hard statement, isn't it? Bonhoeffer was a man of faith, a believer, a, a, a Christian. But what he's saying to us is that God, the way God has chosen to work in relationship within our lives is that there are seasons and times of life when he seems to be absent. We don't feel him. We don't have a tangible experience of how close he is. And that is not an abnormality within our lives we've maybe created a sense that the normal bit is when i'm at new horizon and there's a big buzz and it's so encouraging and so exciting and then i have to go back to this abnormality of being with a small tiny community of people where the preaching is okay and the songs are all right maybe that's our fault as new horizon that if we've contributed to that you know that's not the way it's meant to be And so we shouldn't go into life with the expectation that the highs will be where it is. We have to learn to live under God or before God and with God without God. Not because He is not there, but because we do not feel it, we do not sense it with the same immediacy. Because he has not promised that you will always feel and sense his presence. But he has promised that he is always there. Yes? And so this is is part of learning to live and learning the life of faith. Eugene Peterson says, the secularized mind, he's talking about the culture that I mentioned of therapies and solving problems. The secularized mind, the mind that thinks that way, is terrorized by mysteries. It hates mysteries. Got to get an answer. Got to solve it. Got to fix it. But you know, don't you, that there often is no answer to the why question. There are possible answers, but but for most of us, the Lord does not tell us in this life why this had to happen, why I had to go through this. Was it his doing, or the enemy's doing, or my doing? And so he, he says this, it makes lists, assigns roles, labels people, and solves problems, but a solved life is a reduced life. Do we believe that? Uh, and please don't get me wrong. I don't find this easy because i I struggle, and I struggle again, and here I go again. <laughs> but maybe a solved life is a reduced life, because maybe it is in the mysteries and the struggles and the questions that we learn: humility and grace and patience, and faithfulness, and tenderness towards others who are struggling. And Henri Nouwen said, our lives are not problems to be solved, but journeys to be taken with Jesus as our friend and finest guide. Isn't that true? I think it is. Now please again, don't, don't get me wrong, I'm not saying God cannot do the miraculous uh, and the sudden dramatic change, but more often it seems that it is walking with the shepherd, learning to receive his care. Right. And Nyan said again, sometimes in living the questions, answers are found. More often, as our questions and issues are tested and mature in solitude, the questions simply Dissolve. Some of mine, I'm still waiting for them to dissolve. (laughs) But then I'm on a lifelong journey, aren't I? And I'm still breathing. (laughs) And there's another day to keep learning and and growing. Uh, Let's not pause for questions just now. But I want to say, just as we we come towards the close, what I believe then pastoral care ought to be, this gospel-shaped care. How does it work out? Well, it is gospel people... People who believe the gospel in a gospel community, as a community of people shaped by the gospel, helping people in need, that's what makes it care, through gospel ministry and helping them to gospel growth. OK, uh, and I'm, I'm emphasizing the gospel in there. You might notice that because it is the gospel growth that we want to see in the lives of people. And we want to do that in a gospel way as gospel people in a community, not as rogue individuals, but as part of a caring community. And how does that happen? Well, we could talk about all of these points, and I would love to, and I'm happy to make these slides available, but you really need to come. It's not a, I don't mean that as a plug for the course, but we would in the course, so forgive me that we can't today. But I do want to mention this third point, gospel ministry, the priesthood of believers in presence and provision, instruction and intercession. As Protestants and evangelicals, which most of us probably are, we tend not to use the word priest, and I understand why, because it sounds like we're looking for leaders who are like the Old Testament priesthood, Uh, and that's not the kind of leader we're supposed to be or have in the New Testament. They don't offer sacrifices, and they don't uh, stand between people and God, Uh, as unique only these priests do it. But we mustn't lose sight of the fact that we are called to be a priesthood, all of us priests, that's the difference from the Old Testament. We, it's not that the priesthood goes, it's just that we're all part of it. And what do priests do? They stand before God on behalf of people, and they stand before people on behalf of God. Yes? And that means four things. That works out in four ways. We stand before people on behalf of God as people who are present with others. And that is often, first and foremost, it is without words, isn't it? We are simply there. We are there, as different writers have put it, as a reminder, as a representative of God, not because we claim to be the best picture of who God is but because we are there to present God to them again to re-present him to be a reminder that he has not gone that's how he's designed it so we live before God without God but with reminders of God embodied in the people who come and care for us and the greatest thing that you can do to care for somebody else who cannot be fixed is to be there Except that sometimes the greatest thing you can do is not to be there. (laughs) Because you can't be there 24-7, can you? And it wouldn't be good if you were. You would crumble. They would become dependent on you. And so the flip side of the ministry of presence is the ministry of absence. Jesus said, when... Here's what he said to his disciples, John 16, 7, It is to your advantage that I go away. Have you ever just stop and listen to that. Here is Jesus saying to a group of people who are terrified at the opposition that is mounting on the night when he was going to be betrayed, arrested, and killed, it is to your advantage that I go away. Why? Well, two things he said. He says there are things that you need to know that you cannot receive until I have left you. There are things that they could not learn until they had seen him die and rise again. And secondly, the Holy Spirit will come. And that's better than having Jesus physically on earth. Why? Because if he's physically on earth, he can only be in one place at one time, but through the Spirit he can be across the globe in the people in whom the Spirit lives. But what that tells us is this, that there are times when people need you not to be there so that the Holy Spirit can take the truth of God and build it into their life as they look at Jesus crucified and risen. Because that's the only thing that's ultimately going to change, isn't it? Them. In the greatest sense of forgiveness from God and relationship with him. And I say that to say that the skill of pastoral care and the wisdom that is required, which I can't teach you because we learn it as we go, don't we? But it is to have the confidence to say that there can be purpose in not being there. And there is certainly wisdom in knowing your limits When you need to pull back, and you're not just doing that for your preservation, although that's part of it, but it can actually be for the good of the other person. And if you've cared for a lot of people, you've probably seen this. It can actually be a bit annoying sometimes. (laughs) You've gone along and visited and spent a lot of time and said a lot of things and listened to a lot, and then you go on a holiday and you can't see them and you're worrying about them, and then you come back, and and it was when you weren't there that suddenly (laughs) they seem to make progress. But isn't that wonderful because it's God who's doing it and he gets the glory. I'm not going to say anything more on that. Our time is up, but there are more, of course, much more. And if we had more time or a series or whatever, we would talk about each of these dimensions. But the purpose here is to say we need to be gospel people who understand what God's work is in the lives of people, what he has promised and what he hasn't, what is for the now and what is for the future, But to be faithfully committed to being a presence with people, which all of us can do. That's the wonderful bit. Whether you can speak or not. Now, we do need people who can instruct and advise. And we need to be prayerful. Intercession. Then you come before God for the people. Bonhoeffer again said that that is the beginning of love for the brotherhood. Is to pray for them. And so so don't forget that dimension. But as you come into relationship with people, be a presence as a reminder of the constant presence of God, even if there are no words. And have confidence that God will work through his spirit according to the truth as they respond, even and maybe especially when you aren't there. (laughs) So know when there's a limit. Know when you should pull back. Know when you should say, no, I can't be with you every week anymore. But I will keep in touch we'll catch up once a month and know that that's not just for your protection and it's not uncaring but it is so that God can do his work we need to finish up thank you for your patience I will be here for a few minutes I do have a meeting to get to at one but I will be here for a few minutes but can I pray just as we we finish Father we thank you for Christ. We thank you that he is the perfect example of this faithful caring that he knew in your timing and in your eternal plan when he should be here and when he should be with his disciples and when it was time for him to leave so that the Spirit could come and could do his work as they gazed and reflected on their memories of what they had seen in the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus. Father, as we think of our lives and the lives of people we care for, that's so often where growth happens. It's reflection on memories that take a new meaning because your spirit reveals new understanding to us. So would you continue that work in us, Father, in we who are broken people, We thank you that you promise that in Christ you will fix all things that are wrong. This whole universe will be restored and we as part of it. And we confess that we struggle when you don't fix us now. We don't get it, Father. We don't understand. We cry out like the psalmist, how long? But help us. We believe. Help our unbelief. In Jesus' name and for his glory we pray, amen.